And I think what I worry a lot about a social media activism, you know, including my own, is whether I am creating enough impact on social media scape to inspire people to, you know, act further than just, hey, I like this post, so I'm just going to press a like and, you know, move on from that. Thanks for listening to Fresh Off the Vote. We're a grassroots podcast with a mission to make politics exciting and accessible. Our team is 100% self-identified Asian American Pacific Islander youth ready to make waves for the November 2020 election. We created the podcast as a home for conversation and to discuss voter and civic engagement strategies for AAPIs by AAPIs. Hi, I'm Jessica, the marketing and design lead for Fresh Off the Vote. I'm Grace, a writer and storyteller based in New York City. Today, you'll be hearing from us as your rotating co-hosts. Grace and I both work behind the scenes in marketing to write and design for our social media accounts. Naturally, we're both interested in how activism has played out on social in the past few months. Did you see on Instagram this influencer and her sister got harassed while eating at a restaurant by a man telling them to go back to Wuhan? She has a blue check mark on her account and 500,000 followers. So isn't she famous or something? I'm glad she's using her platform to raise awareness. I know I'm saying this from a place of privilege, but every time I see a new video, it does shock me how unashamed people are about being openly racist. Regardless, I do think this instance is a perfect example of how social media capital is completely worthless in real life. We chase the likes, the blue check marks, that social approval, but at the end of the day, you realize that cannot protect you from being judged based on your skin color. I feel like how much social media influence you have is reflective of your social status in real life. So for people with social status and connections already, it's not completely worthless. Through her 500,000 followers sharing her posts, she was able to find the harasser's name, information, and even LinkedIn account. He works at Prudential. And a day later, Prudential tweeted about investigating the matter. Doesn't mean he's going to get punished or that he'll learn not to be a racist, but I am impressed that she was able to find his name from a video of his face. Wow, that was quick. I see what you mean by social media influence equaling social status IRL, but I'm looking at it more like having status, but it not protecting you from harassment in the first place. How many Black athletes, coaches, celebrities have faced racism regardless of their fame and financial status? I definitely see your point. I agree social media barely does anything to prevent racist ways of thinking. I feel like this is maybe a vengeful way of thinking to want to see racists get retribution. Today, we're talking about the hot, hot topic of social media's role in activism, slacktivism, and an emerging term, boba liberalism. All of the isms. Unless you were living underground back in June, which who could blame you, you already know there was a surge of racist attacks against Asians because of COVID and massive protests supporting the Black Lives Matter movement happening across the globe. In response, all of a sudden, everyone started using Instagram to spread news, resources, stories, and activist messages, and it all went viral. So currently, all my suggested accounts to follow are social justice slideshows. Which makes sense, because I spent a lot of time reading those for the podcast. I'm just very interested in how activism slash activism education accounts have gone viral. I read a Vox article on exactly this topic, called How Social Justice Slideshows Made by Activists Took Over Instagram. It's hard for me to describe the design aesthetic of the slideshows as a non-designer, but definitely it feels like soothing eye candy, nice to look at. 
I think you described it to me as the aesthetic of a millennial boss babe who's trying to encourage you to be more self-confident while also selling you a wellness product. Yes, by millennial boss babe, I mean hashtag boss babe. Aren't they also the MLM people? (laughs) Not exactly. Those people are actually evil, though. But back to the aesthetics. As a designer myself, I would totally agree with that description. These educational posts have co-opted popular startup design trends and used them for slideshow activism. It's the soft pastel colors contrasted with bold sans-serif fonts. It's the muted, amorphous, Matisse-inspired shapes in the background paired with Cooper Black. Millennial brands have been successfully using this aesthetic to sell direct-to-consumer products for the past decade. For the same reason some of these products have gone viral, e.g. stellar branding design, I suspect that's one of the reasons why these slideshows have also gone viral. Imagine if all of these were designed as bullet points in Word. Although, under-designing something to look like it came out of the 90s is also becoming a trend now. Hold on, I know what you're talking about. I enjoy those under-designed graphics and memes. Thanks to these educational slideshow posts, I've learned a lot of random facts, one-liner things about Asian identity, race, culture, in an entertaining way, which keeps me scrolling. But I still prefer long-form media like books and documentaries. Because social media has and is always about bite-sized pieces of information, I feel like history can't or shouldn't be condensed that way. The Vox article also brings up the point that it can be argued all social media posting is inherently performative. I agree. From the poster's perspective, it's easy to see how they have to deal with the contradiction of posting seeming performative and not posting seeming like you're ignorant. So I wanted to dig deeper into why we perform on social media. I'm reminded of the sociologist Bourdieu, who I learned about in college. His theory on social capital was that capital is the foundation of social life, and we're all working to collect it in all ways, which includes our social relationships. Virtue signaling, which can be done by expressing opinions online, and by the way, virtue signaling is the action of publicly expressing opinions intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position. So virtue signaling is actually a free, low-effort way to collect social capital. And according to Bourdieu, when we align ourselves with certain values, we're actually climbing up the social hierarchy. The article brought up a lot of good points, not only about the performative nature of these overly designed slideshows, but that design is being used to commodify social justice movements. It raises an interesting point about, quote, the long-term neutralizing effect of making advocacy more digestible and consumable for a large audience, which to me means that in an effort to break down these complicated topics into bite-sized pieces, we've watered down the nuances and the urgency with which we should be treating these topics so that they become yet another passing fad. Now, as a designer for Fresh Off the Vote, I've been guilty of creating a slideshow or two, but... Knowing that our Gen Z millennial audience does engage with these types of posts, my hope is that by distilling a topic we discussed from an episode into an Instagram graphic, we'll catch someone's attention and lure them into listening to our full episode. I hate to say it, but it's marketing, yes, which sounds corporate and kind of gross, but I do think there's a place for that when you want to lower the barrier to entry and raise awareness about social justice issues for people who have little concept of this. To talk more about applying design to social activism, we spoke with Asian-American designer-illustrator Ji-Sub Jung about his past experience working as a creative at the Huffington Post, a news media corporation. 
According to his website, Gsub is an award-winning multimedia artist with an expertise in creating viral content for digital media. Gsub created the series Shit Asian Americans Don't Want to Hear Anymore on his Instagram, revolving around dispelling myths about the Asian American identity. And he has verified account, so you know he's legit. Hi, Gsub. Thank you for agreeing to speak with us. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah. So my name is Gsub Jung. I am an illustrator. Um, who's currently in San Francisco, California. So can you tell us a little bit about what your relationship to activism is, even before you started posting on social media? Yeah, sure. Um, so before we uh go ahead and like start talking a little bit more about my relationship, I just want to preface that I don't think I should be called an activist in any sort of a way. I think there's a difference between people who are doing a lot of groundwork and actually doing grassroots activism versus people who are on social media creating content for Asian Americans and you know, spreading awareness that way. So I just want to make sure that there is no confusion that I am considered an activist. But that being said, um, Really, my um, interest in talking about Asian American issues or any sort of like racial equality issues really goes back to when I went to RISD. So RISD, a uh, Rhode Island School of Design, is an art school. Like I went there to study illustration. For people who don't know, you know, art school is there. Anyways, um, so when uh, while I was attending a uh, RISD, there was a BLM happened. There was a lot of you know, police brutality. You know, there was a lot of use about black people being shot, especially black male passing away from, you know, police shootings and racial profiling and whatnot. And as a person of color, I really got interested in what my relationship to race was and what my relationship to being a person of color in America was. So I like wanted to kind of really ruminate and think about what it meant to be a person in America who, although like I don't necessarily have a direct relationship with police brutality or being black, I still wanted to explore my own identity through, you know, just creating art that was related to, you know, race. So when I was, I believe I, I think I was either in junior or senior, but um, I ended up reaching out to this slam poet named Javin Johnson to partner up and create an animation based on his uh, slam poetry titled Cause He's Black. It's a, it's a poem about a, you know, a black father trying to navigate his own life while bringing up a black child in America and how he's going to have to, you know, eventually tell the harsh truth that being black in America is going to be dangerous no matter what, however you act. So I think that's where I really started thinking more about, you know, my relationship with racial equality and my participation in spreading awareness. I like the idea of seeing activism as way more than just consuming or sharing information on social media. Even though I'm inundated with these social justice slideshows every time I open up Instagram, I don't think it's any indication that change is happening in real life, especially not the institutional and systemic change we need. It's going to take way more than a few clicks and half a second shares to get a basic understanding of race and ethnicity. So I looked at GSUB series and I think it has a therapeutic effect on me to see microaggressions towards Asians exposed to the media sphere, stuff that's commonly heard in American culture in reference to Asians, like, my wife is Asian, or I love Asian woman. Ew, that's so gross. Or you speak English really well. Also one more, I am Asian and I am not offended. That honestly sounds like an Asian person defending something racist. I personally haven't heard any of these comments directed towards me, but if I did, I would run away from that person ASAP. I've definitely been on the receding end of some of these comments, and I still haven't figured out how to respond except to give back a blank stare. So, Gsub, 
What inspired you to specifically speak out about the Asian American identity with the Shit Asian Americans Don't Want to Hear Anymore series? What was your goal and what do you hope to achieve with this series? Right. So generally, um, I think there's a really like big lack of Asian American content and media specifically. You know, we're always talking about every other issues but Asian America, in my opinion. You know, there's always a huge gap when it comes to what Asian Americans have gone through and while living in, you know, diaspora. And there's so many different things that we talk about within the Asian American circle, but that the topics don't really spread outside of that circle. And that's why I started creating shit Asian Americans don't want to hear as a social media content to kind of share, aware, you know, spread awareness and like share our own stories. And I guess my eventual goal is to just kind of show people that, hey, you know, like there are these microaggressions that we face as Asian Americans that people don't really, th- you know, think about or talk about at all to make sure that there is awareness that is out there. We asked Yusuf to speculate on how his series went viral and comment on the timeliness of his series. Yeah, uh, I thought about this a lot when my posts started getting more engagement. I think it really has to do with COVID-19. After coronavirus started emerging, like there was a lot of stories about, you know, hate crimes against Asian Americans, and there was a lot of anti-Asian sentiments happening everywhere and online and outside the streets. And I think people just got tired of having to deal with that hate. Like, obviously, you know, like the whole like anti-Asian sentiment and you know, just racism against Asian people isn't something new, right? Like, we've seen that since the exclusion, Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1800s. And, like, that's something that just kept happening over time. But the recent surge of anti-Asian racism, I think, really did end up making a lot of Asian Americans think about, hey, like, what is our position in America? Do we need to think or rethink about our identities? And I think that's where, like, my posts started picking up a lot of attention. And also, you know, like, I think just generally people have been really tired of listening to a lot of stereotypical comments about Asian people in general, too, right? But there was a bit of a vacuum in that space, so I think that's why my posts started going viral. We've talked a little bit about all these educational slideshows going viral, but we're also seeing a lot of calls to action posts without much action. I'd say that's pretty much the definition of slacktivism. Slacktivism is a combination of the words slacker and activism. This term was originally coined by Dwight Ozard and Fred Clark in 1995 to describe, quote, bottom-up activities by young people to affect society on a small, personal scale. So what's the difference between slacktivism and performative activism? I feel they are used interchangeably. These two terms are definitely interconnected with the idea of people superficially engaging in activism. I see the difference as performative activism, meaning someone merely jumping on a trend just to seem like they're part of the movement, more of that virtue signaling we talked about earlier. While slacktivists are people who care about a cause, but choose more convenient forms of activism that don't require much change in their life. For example, signing a petition supporting the Green New Deal without changing their personal consumption habits. With social media as a platform for amplifying social justice messaging, the difference between these two terms gets pretty blurry. To me, the black squares were the clearest point of slacktivism. I mean, how much effort does it take to post a black square? It was concerning to me because it became more of a bandwagon activity. I think the hard work is reading a whole book about anti-racism, redlining, or the new Jim Crow. 
Also thinking about where you're spending money and if it's possible to change those decisions. And then there's going through the whole emotional work and having uncomfortable conversations with family on how their racist jokes are not acceptable. By making these points, my goal is not to sound more moral or virtuous than others because I also fall into the habit of virtue signaling. But I want to point out that there's other, more long-term, lasting ways to support a cause. I'm surprised at how many people follow what other people are doing to fit in without having any genuine concern for the cause. I brought this up to GSUB. I think we're also kind of getting into a lot of issues with, like you said, performative activism, where people are just kind of posting things because it's a fad, where people who used to not care about, you know, racial inequality or any sort of racism against, like, any sort of a group started posting, you know, for example, that black square that people posted for George Floyd's death, like, it just became a performance and not really anything else. And I think what I worry a lot about a social media activism, you know, including my own, is whether I am creating enough impact on social media scape to inspire people to, you know, act further than just, hey, I like this post, so I'm just going to press a like and, you know, move on from that. We talk about how posting on social media is a shallow and performative act. Something else that's often criticized as performative is representation in media and whether seeing people on screen who look like you is enough. Mulan, for example, has been a hotly debated topic on the internet and within our Fresh Off the Vote team. Here we have a live-action major motion picture about Mulan, a Chinese female warrior hero. But when you dig deeper, you realize all of its writers, the director, the costume designer, the cinematographer, the film editor, and the casting director are all white. So you have to wonder how much this on-screen representation is really worth. By not having diverse representation in creative leadership roles behind the scenes, the on-screen Asian actors are just props for a story written by white people who have no connection or nuanced understanding of the culture they're writing about. I set a low bar for Disney being able to address the nuances of any country that's basically not European or white. Even though we shouldn't, because Disney has deep pockets with financial means to hire experts more native to the culture. I still plan to watch the movie, though, somehow without supporting Disney financially. Support for this kind of shallow representation is a misguided understanding of racial equality and often echoed by a group of people known as boba liberals. This is a fairly new term that's entered the discourse. It was originally coined by Twitter user at diaspora underscore is underscore red. Boba liberalism is, quote, a type of mainstream liberal Asian American politics that, like the drink, is sweet, not very offensive, but also not that good for you. It's just empty calories, end quote. It's like people who conflate eating Asian food and celebrating Asian holidays with actually understanding Asian culture. All of that is just a small piece of the cultural puzzle. Hmm, I'm not sure what to make of that description for boba liberals. So subtle Asian traits, I think, birthed the boba liberals and Andrew Yang empowered them. And for those who lived under a rock for the past year, subtle Asian traits started out as a meme page on Facebook. But it blew up with currently almost 2 million members into a toxic anti-black page dominated by light-skinned East Asians. Subtle Asian traits for me was the first time seeing Asian culture go mainstream, which I feel grateful for, but I'm disappointed with how long it's taking for the boba jokes to get old. I don't want my culture to remain as a meme punchline or a joke, so it's time to make progress away from that. There's nothing inherently wrong with boba jokes or bonding over having tiger parents or a mutual liking for a tomato egg. But when you stop there, that's only a surface-level understanding of our rich culture and history. I think that's why some of us have outgrown that group and eye roll at Andrew Yang's tired Asian jokes. 
I love a good meme about crying at the dinner table because I can't finish my food, but I find myself chuckling, then asking, okay, what else you got? Gsup, what do you think of the term boba liberals and those who blindly support any and all Asian representation? Because they have a point. Volume matters, right? We should have the space to make good art, bad art, and everything in between. Yeah, um, boba liberal, I mean, you know, just to preface too, like, I've been called a boba liberal too before, like several times. So, you know, it's nothing new, right? So, volume matters a lot, and the diversity matters a lot as well. And the moment we're at, I think we definitely need to see a, an array of different things, you know, from Asian American creators, whether it's good or bad. But are we telling our own stories or are we catering to somebody else because it's just going to go popular? In my opinion, I think the intention versus impact is a very important thing to think about. Like if we are always just gunning for creating a very diluted version of what we wanted to say, then that's just all we're going to have in the future because that's what people are going to accept. It's just like an easier thing to listen to a diluted truth than listening to a hard truth, right? So for now, I am very happy that everyone's, you know, like creating a lot of different content with Asian American perspective, but I just want to make sure that we aren't going back to making stereotypical Asian American centric jokes and humor and calling it as, hey, like this is representation. Jisa brings up the tension between creating something we can all relate to and that representation isn't enough to change attitudes towards racial minorities. The question we should be asking ourselves is, do we want this one image or one person to represent us? We should always be evaluating how members of our community are representing us. I remember Andrew Yang brought Asian American centric jokes to national politics. They were very cringy, self deprecating, all Asians love math, haha, types of jokes that made his Asian identity more palatable for white America. Senator Becker, now, I am Asian, so I know a lot of doctors. And they tell me that they spend a lot of time on paperwork, avoiding being sued. I remember exactly when this happened. I had the debate on in the background and I was in the kitchen cooking something, only half paying attention. And when I heard that, I immediately whipped around and said out loud to myself in my empty apartment, did he seriously just say that on the presidential debate stage? So cringy. The last straw for me was Andrew Yang's Washington Post op-ed article, basically saying Asians need to prove their Americanness and that somehow we Asian Americans created the COVID situation and we're tasked with it to clean up now. To say that Asian Americans need to prove our Americanness is very hurtful. Without evaluating his economic policies and campaign platform, he could have definitely pushed the envelope on highlighting racial inequality and calling out xenophobia in the Republican administration, but he chose not to do it. So we brought up the point of one image of representation being more marketable over another with G-Sub. Generally, the reason why there aren't or there used to be not a lot of Asian American centric content, you know, in mediascape generally is because people had the assumption that Asian American stories don't really make a lot of money for people. I don't know whether that's because Asian Americans as a group used to be way smaller, you know, overall than other, you know, minority groups, but that's just been like the case. So I think part of the, part of the big thing about representation really is about how much money you can draw. And, you know, that's been like the case for media. In case of recent surge of, you know, different corporate companies supporting Black Lives Matter and talking more about diversity and like, inclusion in their spaces is also to me pretty relevant to how much money they can make by aligning their political stances to things that matter now. And 
I think uh, the biggest thing that I look at generally when thinking about different company stances is how much money they're contributing to, for example, like DNC or the RNC, or whether they're actively trying to invest money into their uh, minority creators, or whether they have a lot of, you know, like leaders from the BIPOC community. So I think that's like where I can gauge whether they're actually making like concrete changes instead of just saying, hey, like I'm with you guys, but I'm not really going to do anything else. When it comes to evaluating whether a company believes in racial equality, I think it's easier to spot the contradictions. Just follow the money. Does this company that posts about Black Lives Matter really care about diversity if they're not putting their wallet where their mouth is? But when it comes to more lighthearted things, like the subtle Asian traits community, that's where it gets complicated. If we're being critical about how people and institutions are responding to racial injustice, we should be careful not to replicate the same problems in our own communities. Subtle Asian traits started out as a meme page, but it soon devolved into a place where controversy and even problematic comments were being shared. Gsup, what do you think about subtle Asian traits? I like at first I really liked the group. I think uh, humor is really important to inviting people in and making sure that people get used to, you know, different topics, right? But I think at a certain point, I think there is a, just too much anti-blackness going on in that group. Because on one hand, Asian Americans definitely do face racism, but I think we have, a at times, have very, like, productive moments of just trying to cover up everything that we do that are negative by saying, hey, we face racism too. And I don't think that's a fair statement. You know, how, like, K-pop is an appropriation of black culture and how it's irresponsible for people who are of Asian American or, like, Asian descent or, like, Asian American descent, too, that, you know, that's inclusive here, to not be supporting BLM when they're profiting off of black culture, period, right? It is a very nuanced culture because there are a lot of people who are also talking about, hey, you know, but black people, like, culturally appropriate Asian people, too. But I think the topic is not as easy as, hey, like, some people are stealing from ours, so let's just steal theirs. I think, like, one thing that subtle Asian <laughs> trait does is it kind of makes every argument into a reductive statement, and I think that's something that I just can't get behind at this point. I agree that there's a lot of anti-Blackness within Asian culture, and when we have insular online communities, we tend to perpetuate those problematic attitudes. Social media is an echo chamber. It's structured in a way that prevents us from having lengthier conversations, which is necessary to unpack complicated ideas like systemic oppression. It's easy for Asian Americans to forget we actually share a collective goal with all minority groups to dismantle white supremacy. You just can't have these conversations on Facebook. So Grace, through my own experiences and discussions, I've noticed a common process most people go through when they learn about a social justice issue. Step one is becoming aware of the issue potentially through social media. Step two is gaining a deeper understanding of the subject through doing their own research and education. And finally, step three, taking action. We asked GSUB for suggestions on step two, how to learn more about a cause beyond sharing Instagram PowerPoint slides. Making more effort really comes back to us though, right? Because I mean, like there is on one hand, you know, like it's social media is passive consumption unless you're making content for social media. I think, you know, if we are interested, then we have a duty to go deeper and start looking at different sources, books, documentaries. As individuals also have to do a lot more research than just stopping it. Okay, I read this post and I feel informed. Now I'm just going to move on. It's, it's a hard bridge to gap, but I think it's uh, something that people should all try to do more. So Jessica, what do you do to become a more informed consumer of social media? 
I can think of fact checking, asking if the source is credible, and for breaking news, being aware to see if it's been confirmed by multiple sources yet. My main thing is get off that social media and just start reading more, whether that's reported pieces, personal essays, or just books. Slideshow posts are only a half step up from skimming headlines. There's a lot more heavy lifting to do if you really want to be informed. So once we're more informed about what's going on in the world, G-Sub, what would you say are ways to take direct action outside of the usual, like attending protests, donating money, and contacting politicians? Generally for me, you know, it's really about supporting the community that you're with. There's a lot of discussions about supporting small businesses, right? So if you can go to a local grocery store, like mom and pop shops that are operated by an immigrant family, I think that's a really good thing to do. And contributing to a campaign or some sort of like a fundraiser or even, you know, signing a petition, like those are all really good steps to me. If you have any Asian American friends who are in the media scape, artists, illustrate, like whatever, you know, if you can contribute to them monetarily, especially if they're suffering right now because of COVID-19 and the pandemic. Like, I think, you know, being able to contribute financially, even if it's like 10 bucks or something like that, I think really goes a long way for them. Obviously, like, you know, voting is another thing too, right? We should all be voting for people who we think are going to help solve the issue systematically. Our team believed in that too, which is why we created the podcast. As someone who's tasked with marketing the podcast, which basically means attracting internet attention and listeners, we have definitely followed the trend in making infographics and PowerPoint presentations. I also really pushed it with the dating references, and that came from seeing how much traffic subtle Asian dating gets. But I never want to compromise our integrity in order to get attention. We always try to fact check, make sure we're sharing information from credible sources, and we try to make space for conversations with our followers by posing questions and inviting opinions. The podcast itself is also something that lengthens the conversations on these controversial topics. Since the explosion of these slideshow posts, I've been exposed to a lot of new concepts, and I've been trying to learn more about them. I've been watching documentaries like 13th and LA92. I've joined a book club that I highly recommend called Reading a Book with Kara. Kara Brown is one of my favorite writers and podcasters who really believes in the transformational power of books. I even joined this podcast so that I could contribute to the content being produced about the Asian American identity. But I think the hardest part of this has been having a lot of these complicated conversations about race and politics with my parents. It usually devolves into a screaming match, mostly because of me. So I try to remind myself to understand things from their point of view of being first-generation Asian immigrants living in a white suburb outside of Kansas City and the adversity they've faced before diving into these controversial topics. But it's still an ongoing work in progress. I joined this podcast for the same reasons. I still haven't watched the 13th, but I started reading the new Jim Crow. I feel you on how emotionally draining it is to talk with my parents about race because they don't see it as a social construct. Since I live in a liberal bubble and the people around me in my generation, at least, have the same views on politics, I'm trying to branch out from this by exposing myself to conservative ways of thinking within my own generation, so not really talking about my parents, and really examining for myself if I agree with those people. I guess you can also say it's a privilege to not be triggered by controversial topics. For instance, I know a friend in the LGBT community who wouldn't actively seek to learn about Christianity because he was hurt by that community growing up. 
I can think of another example of a friend who's undocumented and him not wanting to read news on the status of DACA, which is understandable and I support people who need to distance themselves from triggering news, and I don't want them to feel guilty about doing that. So, my own personal goal is to listen to opinions that I don't agree with, even though it's naturally a hard thing to do because I'll be uncomfortable. So, are we telling our listeners to watch Fox News? Well, why not if you have the emotional capacity to do that? But I really wouldn't want to subject our audience to that torture. Let's talk about what the audience can take away from our conversation with GSUB. Well, for one, before you get overwhelmed with all of the slideshow activist posts, do a little self-reflection and figure out what your values are and which causes align with those values. Then run off and read all the books. You can financially support local businesses, artists, writers that you like by buying their merchandise, gift cards, or supporting them on Patreon, which is relatively low cost. I recently bought these mental health themed tarot cards from a magazine called Asian American Literary Review, and I can't wait to use them on someone on Zoom. Also, Start a book club or movie club to expand your media diet with people who can be your accountability buddies. Also actively find, read, watch, and support art made by people of color. I'm currently re-watching a childhood favorite TV show, Sister Sister. I think it's just as important to watch documentaries like 13th as it is to enjoy a sitcom that happens to star a Black family. When we consume more books, shows, and movies about different groups of people just living life, we start to realize how much our experiences actually have in common. Netflix immediately plays Sister Sister when I log in, and I feel like I go back in time watching sitcoms, but I'm going to take your recommendation. So I like the direction we're heading into, which is normalizing discussions of social justice. We can have a balance between being intentional with our learning and also passively consuming and just enjoying. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Fresh Off the Vote. Follow us on Instagram at Fresh Off the Vote. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, and Stitcher. We upload every single Monday, so stay tuned. You can also donate to us on Buy Me a Coffee. Any amount helps and will be greatly appreciated. Our team can't thank you enough for your contribution and support. There's so much to cover during and up until November. But is there something you think we should talk about? Hit us up at pr at freshoffthevote.com. We want to know. Thanks again, everybody. This is Grace. And this is Jessica. We're signing off.